On this episode of Quantum Week, October 28th through November 3rd, 1984. Welcome to Quantum Week. I'm Matt. I'm Chris. Quantum Week is a show in which Chris and I leap into a week in a year in our lifetime. We talk about the movies, the music, the headlines, everything that happened during that time period to make it unique. Absolutely. And we actually have a guest today. We do. Uh, Kirk Manahan from Barstool Sports. Uh, I will say if anyone doesn't listen, it's the funniest podcast in the country. I yeah. Think. Favorite podcast. Uh, welcome, Kirk. Do you think there's people listening to this who you need to introduce me to? I think so. We have a few people well, that are like my movie own, nerds. This is, my, this is my own publicity, this appearance. Well, it's for ours and for yours, but I mean, we're happy you're here, of course. And uh, anybody who doesn't know your show, we want to make sure they damn well better. Absolutely should. Yeah. Uh, okay. So we're talking about the last week in October 1984. Um, we're talking about Karate Kid. Yeah. Kirk, are you a Karate Kid fan? Oh, of course. I mean, what are you kidding? Uh, huge, 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 huge. Yes, massive. Now, I've probably seen it. I mean, it was on HBO all the time as a kid. I've probably seen it 200 times, I would say, from beginning to end. I would guess. Yeah, same here. Uh, giant fan. Uh, we'll talk about John G. Alvison's career in a bit, um, but I definitely kind of talk about the movie as a whole. Um, I think this movie really holds up. I was shocked on how good it still was. Oh, yeah. I loved watching it this time. I probably haven't seen it. It's another one of these films that I saw a bunch of times as a kid, but probably haven't seen in the last 20 years. Yeah, I think Supernatural. Machio, um, he, I don't know what happened. What, Kirk, what do you think happened to Machio? Like, I think in this role, he's incredibly natural. It feels doesn't feel forced at all. And then eventually he kind of becomes a cartoon later on. I don't know what happens there. What do you mean is the evolution of LaRusso or Macho the actor? Macho, Macho the actor. Well, I think he's one of those guys who there are some kids who are better child actors than adult actors. We know that. He was almost a tweener. Like he just was not a believable adult actor for some reason. He's fantastic in The Outsiders. Legitimately great in The Outsiders. And is it's, it's I think, pretty interesting casting in The Karate Kid. You could have gone... You know, in that era, you could have casted, I don't know, 30 guys we knew at that point. I mean, you could have put Rob Lowe in that. You could sure. have put C. Thomas Howell in that. You could have put... Matt Dillon. Henry Thomas. I don't know. Matt Dillon. I mean, there were, Henry Thomas probably young. Matt Dillon. Pro- yeah, Matt Dillon. But the problem with Matt Dillon was he's kind of tough. You he's too big. Around. You need somebody kind of vulnerable. Lowe, maybe a little bit. But Macho, for sure, uh, had that thing going. But yeah, I don't know. You know, it was weird. He got... He just kind of went away. I remember, you know, he was in Teachers, which was a hit. Um, but I remember seeing my cousin Vinny in the theater. And back then when you went to see a movie in the theater, you weren't sure about everyone who was in it. And Machio was in it. And you said, and it was, what year is my cousin Vinny? Like 91. 90, yeah. 91. And you're thinking, where the hell did Ralph Machio go? It, it, it happened just like that. And then, you know, he's done an odd thing here or there. I know they will. I'm sure we'll talk about the Cobra Kai, Cobra Kai stuff. Yeah. But I mean, I'm, I'm not sure what happens when guys, cause he looks pretty good now, but I, I, it's weird. how some guys make it through the vortex and some guys don't. I mean, in a different world, does Ralph Macchio play, you know, uh, Pete Mitchell? You know, I don't, I don't know. It's, 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 it's a strange way you get breaks and don't get breaks. I just don't get how he's so natural and good in this. And I feel, it feels so authentic. And I feel like every, even Karate Kid 2 and 3, and definitely my cousin Vinny, he doesn't feel authentic anymore. It's like he <laughs> lost that relatability. And I don't understand how you lose that. I understand you lose your looks. I get that. You're not cute anymore. But how do you lose the relatability? You think you'd gain that. Well, I think, you know, I think part of that is going is like getting older. He got a little beefier and that sort of vulnerability, which made Johnny and the Outsiders, uh, you want, you rooted for him so much in Daniel LaRusso. 
by the time Karate Kid 2 rolls around, he's actually a little taller. He looks, he's kind of, you could tell he's a movie star in his mind. He's had some hits and now he's not really buying that whole thing. So just like that, you know, it goes. And, you know, I thought he was okay in Karate Kid 2. I have a soft spot for Karate Kid 2. It's bad, but it's good. But by Karate Kid 3, he's like. He's a bloated mess. He's like, he has a belly. He's like 240 pounds. He's also like 29 years old. He's 23, I think, when he made this. 22. And he looks like a high school kid. He looks looks incredible. He looks really young. He looks like a young high school kid. Uh, Yeah, because Johnny's so much bigger. He's like, he's like five inches taller. Yeah, he go, yeah, he looks runty, which he has to, I guess. Pat Morita in this is is phenomenal. I just got nominated for an Oscar. Yeah. Um incredibly complicated guy. I guess he was an alcoholic. He died, I guess, partly because of drinking. When he died, he was alone. He had separated from his third wife. He died in Vegas, I guess, in some like shitty place. It just seems like a sad end to him. If if things had gone differently, do you think Pat Morita could have had a better career? Or are we thinking this is just kind of who he was and he kind of peaked I mean- out? This was his peak. I mean, you know, he broke in at a time where the characters he was going to play were pretty specific. Yeah. I mean, Happy Days, he definitely had a thing going. And I think I could be wrong if you look it up. On Sanford and Son, I think he had that recurring character named Ha Chu. That's right. Character. Yeah. To give you an idea of what, what, the, what the climate was like right. at that point. But uh, he was nominated for the Karate Kid. He should have been nominated for the Karate Kid. I believe I could be wrong. I believe the script was nominated for the Karate Kid. I don't I don't I don't think it was. I think it, it no. should have been. Um, I could be wrong. I'll look at that. I, I, could, I, I could be, be wrong. wrong too. Uh, and Allison was, and I know that. Obviously, he had won oh, yeah, for, yeah. for Rocky. But you know, right. uh, Pat was like he had. So he had a tragic end to his life. He also had a tragic beginning. Did you read anything about like yeah, when he was two? Camps. Well, not only that, when he was two years old, he was uh, he was diagnosed with a, like a spinal disease, a spinal tuberculosis. I'd never heard of such a thing. And he was in and out of hospitals for like the first nine years of his life. He even had spinal surgery. And then when he got out, the doctors told him he would never walk again, but he, but he did, obviously. He did? Yeah, of course. You say he walked again? He walked again. Wow, how about that? He did some karate. But even, but after that, he gets out of the hospitals and then his fa- his family is in, in an internment camp. So he's there for the next like couple years of his life too. It was a pretty and, tragic and beginning. And I explained the drinking. I think he had three different wives. I think he had kind of this tortured life. He got an ABC show. I don't know if Kirk remembers this one. I know Kirk's a big TV nerd. Uh, Lieutenant, I think it's called Lieutenant O'Hara. Uh, mm-hmm. not Uhura, like Star Trek, but right. like, but it was like, he played like a cop, uh, for a year. I think it was on ABC or something. I don't remember that one at all, Kirk. It was forgettable. I, don't know that. I, know he was, I think he was in that movie. The script wasn't nominated. You're right. I think he was in, was he the co-star of that movie with Jay Leno that totally tanked? It was awful. Uh, was it like a uh, cruise country? It was a, like, no, it was, a, uh, like it was a, yeah, it was Detroit something maybe. Yeah. yeah, something, yeah, maybe, yeah. I forget yeah. That. that was a, but he, had, he had this sort of, you know, there was nothing he could do with that role at like, you know, so he played Mr. Miyagi, whatever what four times yes yeah so i mean you know for him at that point in his career to get this is a total godsend who won that year who, who beat him for support i forget now? 84 it would have been 85 uh supporting actor uh it wasn't william hurt was it no he won for uh lead actor i don't remember i don't remember yeah, yeah. i don't know um maybe back the killing fields maybe i forget but uh, that might be it that might have been and he died tragically too that he, he got really young that was really um, sad yeah, um, but um but you know without you could make that movie, I think, with Rob Lowe or C. Thomas Howell. It might not be as good, but it, it, it would still, you'd still talk about it. I can't imagine, and, I only, and maybe it's because there were so few actors that we knew of that descent at the time, I can't imagine making that movie with anybody else. It seems totally impossible. And it took him five tries to get it. He had to audition five times before yeah. Allison oh, would let a, him have it. It's a sitcom stigma. Yeah. You know? I mean, he was really known. I mean, you guys know. Happy days. 
to explain how big Happy Days is now to an audience of people who are younger, I mean, they don't understand. I mean, there were, you know, it was the biggest show in America for a while. There were 30, 40 million people a week watching. So it would be like having, if you made the movie now, I don't know. Like, like if you made Jim it, Parsons, maybe? Years, what's that? Like having like Jim Parsons or something. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you know, like, like, you know, if you made like that in 2006 or something and Matt LeBlanc played it, like, there's just, it just is not, it, it, there's that stigma. I think that was the biggest reason why, but uh, Jerry Weintraub, I think, produced it. And, you know, I think wound up casting, his book's actually pretty good. And he talks a little about casting Marita. And I think it made the, it completely made the movie. I mean, totally. He's, he's the, he's the biggest part of the movie by far. Now you have a son that does karate. You have a, like a seven or eight year old son. Have you shown him this? And if so, does it hold up? He's so, he's too young to really, he, he liked it. We watched it. He liked it. He didn't love it. Mm. I think in two or three years, he might like it more. I watched it maybe two months ago. I watched like the last two thirds of it holds up great. It almost, it's funny how it looks now. Like it's almost an independent movie. It looks like it was made for nothing. Oh, I, don't yeah. the, I don't know what the budget was, but you had no movie stars. I think it was, it was $8 million it was like, or something. That was like six, no, between six and eight. It was tiny. Yeah. Um, no. Okay. So I have, I have a point here. So I think there are two scenes that should be cut out of this movie entirely. And if you do that, the movie still makes sense and you can shorten the running time. The first scene is the scene when Daniel see at the country club where Daniel sees Elizabeth Shue's character, Allie, uh, kiss Johnny. Kiss, yeah. Yes. With spaghetti. You take right. that scene out and you take out the scene where then he gets the girl back at the arcade the second time. If you take, which has the most ridiculous line. He's like, uh, you know about the karate tournament, right? And she goes, of course everyone does. Yeah. Like everyone right. knows about this fucking karate tournament. <laughs> it makes no sense. Well, uh, Elizabeth, Elizabeth, uh, uh, Elizabeth Shue's best friend fucking hated Daniel LaRusso. Oh, yeah. Hated him. Hated him. <laughs> Hate. She was the one who like had the because you know it was she was the one who kicked off the whole you know uh, uh, the whole thing that led to Cobra Kai for years was sort of this internet thing. I mean, she just fucking would snarl at him even <laughs> when he won at the end. She had a fucking sour look on her face. She hated Daniel. Uh, she but hated, if you just take those two scenes out, the movie's like fourteen minutes shorter, so now it's under two hours, which I think is a better mm -hmm. runtime. And it, you don't lose anything. She still loves Dan or whatever. Still Daniel's girlfriend. And you can get rid of those two embarrassing scenes. That's spaghetti. That's a sitcom scene. That's horrible. That is bad. That is bad. I always wondered when I watched it, why did, why did Allie kick that ball away when they were playing? So far. She kicks it like a mile away. Yeah, why? why? Like, Who would do that? What was she doing? She was kind of being a dick. Like, I don't know what the point of it was. I don't think watching the movie either. I know Cobra Kai. So we'll talk about this a little bit. This, yeah, I, yeah, the yeah. idea that like, you know, uh, you know, Daniel's the bad guy. And, and Zabka's the good guy. Did you watch it? I watched I it. I did. I watched the first yeah. season. I It's a very entertaining, for sure. But sure. I'm watching this movie again. I watched it uh, okay. two days ago. Totally. It doesn't hold up. He's not the good guy. He's an asshole. He kind of pushes Allie around. Oh, yeah. He throws her stereo oh, yeah. in the ground. He's a dick. Yeah, the box, yeah, he's not good. He's not good. No, there's no, I mean. Drug addict, total drug addict. Yeah, it's not, it's not good. Did you see? So I was watching, I think maybe a year or two ago when they were they were about to do Cobra Kai. Mm -hmm. um, LaRusso and Zapka had a, did an interview and, and Zapka talks about winning that role. Did it's you, Macho. It's Macho and Zapka, Matt. Yeah, it's know, it's, I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry. Macho plays the character. Daniel Russo's yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, not a real person. Whatever. So yeah, Zapka, yeah. Zapka talks about winning the winning that role. Did Have you ever heard? Did you hear about yeah, this? Yeah, some of those interviews. Yeah, I, I listened to a podcast those two guys did when they, I forget who they did it with. Yeah, he talks about that. And there's a lot of footage on YouTube of those guys like trying out and working out. And, and yeah. Yeah, yeah, but he grabbed Avildsen in the in the audition. 
and like right. shook him and delivered the line. And I guess it left a big enough impression on him that that's what won him the, <clears throat> won him the role. He's great. He's yeah. great in the role. He's a great bad. I mean, he's yeah. he's a great bad guy in all these eighties movies yeah. that we grew up watching. You know, like yeah, uh, just one of the guys. Yep. Just one. And then uh, he's isn't he the bad guy in Back to School? He's the bad guy in Back to School. Yeah, he's he, guy, he gets cramps. Yeah, he, screw you, Melon. That's he, right. Uh, <laughs> the girl in Just One of the Guys, Joyce Heisner, mm. was the longtime girlfriend of Bruce Springsteen. In the early eighties, like, very serious girlfriend. Like the girl, like the lead in just like the high school girl. Guys. Yeah, the one who we see her breast, like the first breast. Yes. A lot of people have ever seen the first pair of tits I ever saw on TV. She was Bruce's girlfriend. For- Seriously? Seriously? I was trying to explain this to Matt. I don't remember the film because it was a PG thirteen movie. And you see her, you see her tits. It's the first time. Quick to, uh, to the guy, to the guy in the movie who looks like he's seventy six years old. The high school guy. <laughs> he looks like looks like he's ninety. But yeah, she dated Bruce for like three or four. Very serious in like the early eighties. Yeah, that's I, I did I did not know that. Oh, yeah. um, can we talk a little about John G. Avilson, or do you have any else on Karate Kid? No, that's that's right. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, okay. You, you don't sound very enthused, Matt. Oh, I love that. No, this. All right, yeah, all go right good. Uh, so, Kirk, I kind of want to walk through John uh, G. Avilson's career a tiny bit with you. He mm-hmm. is a perplexing guy to me because he's had these, like, it's either rags or riches with him. He's either had these great movies or he's had these, like, complete debacles. And you're a little bit older than me. Uh, I'm, I think I think you're about five years older than I am. So I'm kind of hoping maybe you can pers- provide some perspective, especially kind of on how his reputation was or kind of what you thought about some of his movies. Um, he, wasn't, he, he wasn't somebody who, and I didn't go through the movies. Yeah. But he was never, like, you don't think of, put it this way, his, the movie he's, the best known movie he ever directed Nobody ever, if you ask a hundred people who directed that movie, nobody knows. You right. ask a hundred people who directed The Godfather or Raging Bull or Do the Right Thing or Zodiac, you know, that's a filmmaker, but Abelson was there to direct a movie, get in and get out. But he directed two of, in my opinion, two of the best, three best sports movies ever. My favorite's Field of Dreams, and then it's Karate Kid and Rocky, or Rocky and Karate mm-hmm. Kid in that order. But, I, I mean, I, but the Karate Kid was essentially a Rocky remake. Yeah. Like go, you know, go, I mean, you know, uh, Marita is Meredith, right? Yep. And Rocky's a scrappy underdog and he kind of likes a girl. And at the end he has, he winds up winning at the end, uh, Machio, but you know, he overcomes and it's a big thing at the end. And I mean, it's not, there's a reason why they went to this man to direct this movie. He had directed this movie before and I'm sure he needed, you know, if you look at his IMDb page, which I have, it's just, there's no movie where you say, boy, this guy is a great director. Now Rocky's a, a really good movie, mm-hmm. but I mean, he also directed Rocky five. But, you know, he, he was, a, a, you know, kind of a guy who they hire and they need something to be done. And that's okay. I mean, there's, there's, there's a place for a guy like that. He did a, I mean, he did a really good job. He knew how to direct a sports movie for sure. So after Rocky, right. I, and I completely agree. And it does make a lot of sense. Other than this weird genre of like sports underdog movies, his career is, is bad. He does, um, he follows up Rocky, which is a weird choice. He does a Paul Sorvino romantic comedy about it's called slow dancing in the big city it's never been released on dvd i've never seen it and then he does a movie called the formula which has an all-star cast as marlon brando george scott have you ever seen that i've never seen the formula it's not good it's terrible right he got nominated for razzies i guess it's bad not good not good now let's remember won the oscar for rocky right yeah that's what i mean you have an oscar winning if you're an oscar winning director your next movie is a paul sorvino romantic comedy is weird and then he does neighbors and I, i really want to hit on this with you kirk have you ever read wired by bob woodward Yes. Like he goes in neighbors a lot about how na- this, yeah. this, I guess this was a disaster. Belushi was completely high on Coke the entire time. Right. He wanted to have this band called fear. He was obsessed with do this, the uh, soundtrack for neighbors. And I guess fear was like this punk band. He actually got them on SNL eventually. And they're, they're horrible. They're very amateur. Almost like it was like performance art. 
But like, I guess the, Allison and Belushi were clashing heads the entire time, and it was it was a complete disaster. Obviously, Belushi then dies shortly after, and then he does a couple other small movies, and then he does Karate Kid, which once again works, and then he follows it up with just bad movies. Although he does Four Keeps with Molly Ringwald, which is a bad movie as well, but not terrible. It's just a strange the, path. The movie before Rocky that he was known for was the one with Peter Boyle. What was it called? Joe. Uh, yes, and that got nominated for three Oscars. Yes, yeah, I've never a, seen that's it. That's a good movie. I haven't seen it in a long time, but that's a good movie, and that kind of got on the radar for him. So I'd say he's made you know three or four good movies. The Belushi book is good by Woodward, though. A lot of Belushi people contend that Woodward went in with an agenda because they came from the same town, Belushi and uh, mm. and Woodward, and Woodward was out to get him. That's what that's what uh, Jim Belushi always says. I've read some interviews with him where he hates Woodward. Oh, Woodward. the Belushi people hate the book. Ackroyd has right, yeah. gone on record saying he like they've they've had a number of daggers out for Woodward for that. But it is an interesting book, and it is an really? interesting look in this time, the early '80s after SNL for Belushi. Maybe a lot of people just don't know about that was a complete chaotic mess. You know, the real the, the person who turned out to be the closest thing to a star in that cast of the Karate Kid was Elizabeth Shue for a while. Yeah, you know, she got nominated for Oscar. Adventures in, Adventures in Babysitting, which was a hit. She got to play the lead in the Tom Cruise movie, which was a hit. And then she kind of went away for a little bit, but then she got nominated for an Oscar. She's great leaving Las Vegas. Yeah. She could have easily won. And she's kind of consistently worked on and off since then. Yeah, she, I think she's even doing stuff now. She was in that- The boys on uh, on Amazon she was in. She, she, yeah, she's she's a working. She's had a nice career. Yeah. She's had the best career of everyone in that movie. Definitely. By yeah. far, I would, I would say. Oh, I would say for sure. Uh, definitely. She was, I mean, she, like I said, she had a little movie star kind of run. And the weird thing I've said before about the Karate Kids, I think it's going to be the last studio movie ever made where the teenage girl, I think, weighs more than the teenage boy in Karate Kid. I think Elizabeth Shue weighs more than Ralph Macchio in that movie. Well, Tim, some oh. of Timothy Chalamet. Timothy Chalamet is built like I am. He's pretty scrawny. Well, I, I could see it maybe, though, if he's matched up with someone who's... Maybe he's in, in a Kate Winslet movie. Just, oh, Elizabeth Shue's <laughs> not even heavy. Macchio's like no. 105. No, I, I, yeah, well, I, as a fellow scrawny guy, I'm, I'm Team Macho on that. So go get him. Go get him, Ralph. Uh, and for a moment, I, I just wanted before, yeah, I know you guys I'm sure want to move on. Oh. A moment, please salute the great work of Marty Cove in this film. Oh, let's talk. Marty, he's amazing. And phenomenal, I'm sure you did too. Phenomenal performance. He's yeah. great. And did you know him from Cagney and Lacey? That's how yes, I knew him. He had a recurring role in Cagney and Lacey, yeah. I believe he was Sharon Gless's husband. Um, oh, that, yeah, I think that's right. And and mm-hmm. that's kind of how I knew him as a kid. So my parents watched Cagney and Lacey. So we watched that. And then I go to the theaters to see this. I was only like four or five, but I mean, I still knew him in this one prism. And he's the bad guy. My mind yeah. was like, fucked. I think it was the yeah, first he, time I'd ever seen someone be a good guy and then be a bad guy in a movie. And Zapka said he didn't even meet him until, until they were in scenes together. So all he knew him was in character until like later, until after the film was done. He's really good. Yeah, he's, he's great. Yeah, yeah, he's fantastic. He's a great bad guy. Great bad guy. I, I wish he had done more stuff. I, I don't know why he didn't. <clears throat> yeah, I'm so surprised he didn't show up with some cheesy, like, he must have been. He, he must have, he must have been a working actor for a long time. I've seen him some commercials lately. It looks like he has some work done. doesn't look great. Mm. He's in the, uh, um, that, uh, the Cobra Kai show. I guess he's a yeah. regular in season two, which I haven't seen a ton of. I haven't of. seen that um, at all. But he, I guess he well, has more. He rolls around in that terrible Karate Kid 3. It's just, you know, the whole thing's a disaster. That's a rough watch. Uh, yeah, that's tough. Fucking terrible. Um, do you want to talk uh, Hall and Oates? Yeah, we can do that. The only last thing I think is just the Bill Conti um, oh, crossover from Rocky. I know you did. So we have a little bit of a disagreement on that. I think there's one scene where um, where Daniel is practicing the crane on the wood pillars, like on the beach and stuff. And there's that's a nice piece. But for most of it, I think Rocky just crushes Oh, this. It's oh, not fair. You're not. That's yeah. not. How's it not fair? I mean, I guess because Rocky's one of the best scores ever. That's, <laughs> that's a true. stupid argument. 
It's still Conti, though. You'd think, like... But he's one person. He's a number of movies. It's like saying John Williams is shitty yeah. in anything, but it's not Star well, Wars. No, 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 because John Williams... No, John Williams is amazing in every single... Pretty much every this movie he's ever great. scored when for. When Miyagi nah. claps his hands, when Daniel's in the training bed... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is a good one. Right. I, 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 honestly, yeah. my eyes started to well up. Yeah. I got, right. like, I was like, I'm like, That's let's go one. do this. Let's yeah. fuck... Like, that was, that was awesome. Yeah, it is a cool one. Right. But mostly, I mean, it just, it doesn't even, I don't think so at all. I just think comparatively, it just doesn't even get close where John Williams is on every single time. Do you like the score in this movie, Kirk? Help me out. Uh, the score is fine. The score is fine. Obviously, I think it's Joe Esposito also brought You're the Best. You're the Best Around. Uh, which, yeah, is great, which is a great, I mean, for 80s montage, I mean, it's a tremendous montage. And by the way, uh, Dutch, the one of the Cobra Kai's, is I think played by Chad McQueen. It is. Steve McQueen did. Yeah, That's right. So, you know, the Cobra Kai, and also has Cobra Kai. By the way, also has the kid from uh, Iron Eagle and Revenge of the Nerds. Um, the the black kid from uh, Revenge of the you know who plays. Yes, it also has know. Tony O'Dell from Head of the Class. It also has. It does have. That's true. Yes, another legend. You got a lot going on with the uh, with that crew. There's a lot of guys that you get to keep an eye on there. Uh, I, so I'll say this too before we wrap up. The last mm-hmm. twenty minutes of Karate Kid. For me, and I know it's a formulaic movie, and this maybe makes me sound like a hypocrite because I know it's it's about as good as twenty minutes as I've as as the most enjoyable twenty minutes I can get watching a movie. It's awesome. It is so good, and the last fight scene is amazing too. The it's just thing. the way they shot it, just like sort of low and a wide shot. It's it's amazing. Yeah, I, I love watching it. I love this movie perfectly, so much. Perfectly effective sports movie that you know you don't see anymore. That they, and weirdly now when they make them and they remade it terribly, whatever ten oh, years ago, I, I didn't even watch they, it. They make these movies for 10-year-olds now. They don't make them for kids who are in high school who understand what these guys... It's, I don't know when that changed and when that happened, but you don't see that a whole lot anymore. I, I, I didn't allow you know assholes to really be assholes. Mm. and just, I, I don't know what that's about. Did you watch the... J- it was the Jaden Smith remake with Jackie oh, Chan, right? I, it. It was I didn't even watch it. I, could, I, I, I can't, I, yeah. I can't yeah. do that. I can't, not, I can't I'm do good. No. Uh, yeah, I want to move on to some Hall & Oates. Let's do it. So the song that we're talking about for this episode is uh, Out of Touch by Hall & Oates. Mm-hmm. And my I don't know, is it your fa- it's my second yeah. favorite. I like You yeah. Make My Dreams, or Dreams Come True, or You Make My Dreams it's Come True. Yeah, uh, my favorite, that's not true. My, it's my favorite Hall & Oates song of this sort of 80s period. My favorite right. Hall & song, She's Gone. Yeah, but, that's a great uh, one. Sarah but, Smile but, is probably my favorite for the R&B time yeah. period, but they're kind of a tale of two different bands, right? You've got yes. sort of the, so I know they Spring. formed in 70, but the mid 70s R&B Hall Notes, and then soul. to the eight, yep. right, soul to the 80s, which is way more, you know, pop Slick. keyboard yeah. influenced music. Well, a lot of people thought Hall Notes were a, were a black band. Oh yeah. You know, when you first, and you can, you know, you can understand what, and that's, and that's who their, their, their heroes were. But by the time you get to Out of Touch, we are in Slicksville 80, 80s MTV, yep. you know, uh, which is which for, is, for me is like candy. Like, it's, I, it, I, I could listen to Out of Touch all day. This video is amazing. It is. It's incredible. Oh, unbelievable. Yeah, it is. With G.E. Smith, too. Did you know that he no, was in their band? G.E. G. Oh. Smith was their touring guitar player before yeah, he, he went to Saturday Night Live and oh. was the band leader. Yeah. He was such a smug bastard on, uh, on SNL. Dated Gilda Radner. Did he really? Yeah. Correct. Yeah. They were married. I, think. I guess that doesn't seem to work out time-wise, but maybe he is that. In the old. early '80s, he dated Gilda Radner, obviously. Yeah, I guess. She was Gene Wilder. Yeah, but anyways, you're, it's sort of a tale of two bands. But I, I sort of missed Hall and Oates. I'm a little so I think age-wise and what my influences were in music, I sort of missed Hall and Oates the first time around. I know they were over all over pop, you know, top forty radio. 
but I didn't really, but my music, the music I was listening to at the time was more of my parents' music, which was the folk stuff. And then mm-hmm. by the time I was really developing my own style, it was Pearl Jam in like 91 that hit me. So I kind of yeah. missed some of this pop 80s stuff until I went back in like my early 20s and sort of discover, rediscovered them and, and saw a bunch of old, um, old footage of them playing shows and they were just an amazing talent. Did you, you must've caught them the first time around. Were you a fan of them? Well, when I was you were a fan up? of them. Like I was a fan of everybody in the eighties. They kind of came on and I didn't know, you know, it's like for me, Bruce and I, when Bruce came yeah. on me born USA, I thought it was the first thing he ever did. I didn't know any better at that age. I was 10 Hall and notes, you know, H2O came out and man eater yep. one on one and out of touch. And they had, I mean, they had, they are, I think still the most successful duo in the history of pop music. I think you're right. Yeah, I think yeah. that's correct. Bigger than Simon and Garfunkel, bigger than anybody. Yeah, they've sold 40 million albums, actually. They had 14 yeah. top 40 hits between 1980 and 84. Yeah, they had 14. They had a 30 total. I bet, yeah. you, I bet you half of them at least were in the top 10, at least. I mean, they just they just banged out they hit did. after hit after hit. And six they were number one hits, I think. Six number one, yeah. That's crazy. Six, six number ones. And, you know, they were like, put it this way, my mark at that point as a music fan was mm. – could this person realistically be in a solo spot and we are the world and not have it be weird. Yeah. And Daryl Hall had a, had a solo spot. We are the world. And it makes sense. Cause he was as big as almost, he wasn't like, you know, you had Prince who wasn't there and Michael and Jackson. Jackson. Yeah. Bruce. Yep. And then sort of Daryl Hall and Jones were at that net, like that very next level right below that. I thought of them the exact same, uh, the, like I put them in the exact same place, sort of in that just right below in that second tier of how famous right. they were and influential they were at the time. I kind of do want to talk about their transition from R&B to the synth stuff because I thought it was kind of kind of interesting to hear because we've been on the... Sh- so we're doing two weeks of 1984. So mm-hmm. this is really when synthesis starts to really starts to get popular in music and in scores, like, uh, you know, some of the movies that we've talked about too, like Ghostbusters and or, things. Or Blade Runner before that. Or Blade that, Runner yeah. before that. was right. That's really right. when the synthesis started to happen. And I wonder, I mean, I don't know, but I wonder if, you know, they'd already been together for almost 15 years at that point. And maybe, yeah, maybe they were getting a little bit bored by the style of music. And then when you had all this new equipment in, you, you know, you kind of start to, you start to want to play with it, I think. Uh, but H2O was really the first one where you start to hear that influence come in. and and But it's still more of a sparse album. But when you yeah. listen to uh, when you listen to Big Bam Boom, it's like complete synth, mm. very, very dense, heavy music with like a lot, like a lot of layers in it. Um, and I know that critics at the time were really well critical of it because it was it was kind of so hard to listen to versus some of their yeah. earlier stuff, which yeah. was a lot more sparse. Yeah, it got dumped on for sure. Yeah. I mean, it does sound super slick. I mean, there's no it doubt does. about it. But, you know, it's funny though now, like, you know, people now, I don't think look at that song as a out of touch as a shitty song, but you're right. At the time, people dumped all over it critically yeah. because it didn't, it sounded, I think, you know, I think the natural critical inclination sometimes is to, is to disregard the most popular thing at the time. Sure. I mean, is, I mean, is out of touch, you know, fucking American Pie or the times that are changed? No. But is that? I don't think that's what it was set out to be. I think it was set out to be a nice, big, fat hit, and that's what it was. And if it's on the, you know, on the radio right now, or if it's playing it when you're walking around, friggin', you know, uh, whatever Walgreens or something, it's on. You, you listen, to it, you're like, oh, yeah. this is a good song, good song. And it's poppy, but I do think they were really trying hard to to like write it with a lot of um, intention, though, because. They were even they were they were trying all sorts of new stuff. So that one of the synths that they got was this thing called the Fairlight. Have you ever heard of that thing? Nope. 
it's the first sort of digital workstation uh, that musicians had. It was basically a computer hooked up to a keyboard. And now, I mean, right now, like I've got keyboard, keyboards all over, you know, all over this room here. I've got three or four keyboards in here, but they're mostly all controllers. They don't right. have their own sounds in them, right? Like my sound banks are all on the computer itself. Well, this was the first workstation that did that same exact thing where it had a computer, all the sounds were in it, all the samples were in it, and it just used this keyboard's controller. But you'd have to, you have to actually like program it to make it work, which is way different than what I have to do now. But they were like, but it was a sampler too. So they were, they were like hitting everything that they could to sample it. Like they were, they were sampling people walking over gravel and putting that in their songs. I think they were really trying to make an, you know, an artistic album with this thing, even though it was a, you know, a pop album. Right. It's weird. They, I could be wrong about this. I have not studied them a whole lot, but it seems like they, they've never really had that ugly period at all. I mean, I know Daryl Hall went did some solo stuff for yeah. a while. Oates has done some, you know, he's not, but it seems like they're, you know, they're still, I mean, obviously not right now, they're not touring, but it seems like they're, they tour every summer and they go and if you look at their set list, I'm sure you get the 16 the songs you want to get, yeah. get the hell out. You no, know, you know, I remember one of my friends said the Huey Lewis in the News uh, behind the music was the worst one ever because they never disliked each other. They get along, they right. Has any duet gotten along as well? Like, has any duet survived the test of time like Hall and Oates has? I thought about that driving in today. Like, what... Maybe like critically or no, I mean, just getting along is like being human beings, like, you know, like, and not breaking up. Like, I, I don't know. Like Hall and Oates were amazingly successful, been around forever and never seemed to have had a huge fight. And by the way, also with the dynamic built in immediately where one guy was clearly the more famous of the two. Oh yeah. Right. It seemed to be the least. So there could be some natural, you know, tension and jealousy. And like, that's to me, like a lot of credit to Oates. who's was just kind of like, look, I'm playing the guitar you know, sing my background and do my writing or whatever part of it and then cash the checks. I mean, I don't know. So I don't know, like, I don't know the creative process of like who did, did Oates do the music and they, all did the words or they both contributed. Uh, it both. seemed like pretty equally in, in both. Even that. So that makes it even more sort of strange that they were able to, to have a run like that. It's a good question. I'm trying to think of a, a, a forget it. forget a duo, just a group. You're right. Ooh, no. yeah, it was. Yeah, it can survive. Like, I mean, obviously, Simon and Garfunkel was the most right. famous, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and Garfunkel right. was jealous, and they broke up. But right. like, you know, even you know, obviously, Lennon and McCartney are both amazingly talented. But they had other they shit had going a on. They had a ten-year run, and that was and, it. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, woman yeah, in the background. Had huge ups and huge downs, and you know, so yeah, it's a good question. I, I can't think of a. I can't think of a group that's you know this is not. You know, there was never. I, I could be wrong, but if you Google Hall Notes, Hall Notes break up. I don't think they've ever actually broken up. They've taken time off, like I said, and, but they also maybe they just knew. Like, listen, we're not. It doesn't work this way. Like, you know, if if Hall Notes are playing at some, you know, they probably sell three thousand, four thousand seat arenas out. Uh, if Daryl Hall is touring, that's not going to work. And if John Oates is touring, that sure is not going to work. work. So it's a good, you know, maybe they're just smart business guys too, practical guys. Well, and you think it would be ripe for for some sort of split because really after this album they stopped being relevant. They had one more top ten yeah. hit in their their next album, but they, they this took, was they, it for them. Yeah, really, it really was. Pop, yeah, yeah. There was kind of line of demarcation. They took a four year hiatus. They did do the live of the Apollo, but I think that was just right. f touring footage. They had a good little hit. I forget what it was called. They had a good hit. A song I actually liked in like eighty nine. Yeah, it was off their what next album. Was the next album. I can't What's remember. It I can't remember. Forget. Yeah, I can't remember because sure. I I didn't know it. I couldn't remember it. And yeah, yeah, it. it was kind of, but even then it felt like it's funny back then when you're a kid, they come out with a hit three years later and you're like, what? It felt like it was 30 years ago. Oh, it What's felt old to me. But then, you know, 88, 89, I'm eight or nine years old. And I was into, you know, Guns N' Roses or whatever at that yeah. time. Yeah. This felt like something like, you know, my parents would have listened to. 
you know, I remember yeah, anytime a Hall and Oates oh, video yeah. came on MTV, I kind of would like change the channel sometimes. Just I was kind of bored by it. I mean, I just it just felt old to me, even though it, it probably wasn't, but it just felt that way. Was it Missed Opportunity? Was that the tune? No, I think it's called So Close, So, so Close Yet So Far Away. It's that you believe in tomorrow. Yeah, I don't see it. I don't see it on the album. The next album was Oh Yeah, and I don't see it. What year was that? That was 88, and that was their last okay, top 10. I think, I think it was then, then. They had yeah. one more, like, I think that was, like, a top 20 I think it was a top 10 hit. I think they had one more top 10 hit yeah, off that album. In there. Yeah, yeah, I read that. Hall and Oates, like, song from the 80s. If you listen to that, so I went back and listened to, to Oh Yeah, and it really, it sounds more like a boy band than anything. Like, it's so produced. It sounds more like, like you would, you know, New Kids on the Block or something, and it sounds like Hall and Oates, really. It was, a t- it was a tough one. I give them credit for sticking around. I mean, if they came into, you know, came to my town or whatever, or came to this area, I'd, I'd go see them. I mean, I wouldn't, yeah, you know, pay top dollar, dollar but I would go check them out. And I saw them a couple months ago. You know, PBS will always run these commercials, these concerts where they're trying yeah. to raise money. They had Hall & Oates playing somewhere in, I think it was somewhere in England. They sounded great. The play, it was like a 4,000 seat arena. The place was rocking and they played everything you wanted to hear. And I was like, oh, I could go do that for two hours. No problem. Yeah, I don't know if there's anything else That's on uh, on Hall and Oates. Did you want to get into headlines? I do. So, uh, no, I want to get into like, oh, yeah, the yeah, stories yeah, yeah, a little bit. So, like, Kirk, uh, it's tough. Every time I was born in 79, Matt was born in 78. So anytime we kind of hit these early 80s, it's kind of tough for us to talk personal stories because we were just, you know, little kids. So I don't know, like, if you can remember anything you were doing in 1984 or even this week in general. I know it's your birthday week. But anything kind of was happening in 84, it was kind of an interesting or, you know, fun anecdote or just kind of where you were. It's a great year for <clears> – <throat> it's also, like, it's my favorite year – like for me, it's that favorite cultural movie, book, sort of TV. It's a year where things started forming for me. I lived in a town before I lived in, in Winchester, Massachusetts, and lived in Billerica. And there was the Billerica Mall, and they had a record store there. I used to buy records. I'd buy 45s and albums. My mom, every week or two, would give me $5 and say, okay, get a couple of 45s or whatever. And really, whatever the, and they had the, they had the Billboard Hot 100 chart right there. You could look at it every week. Yeah. And I'd look at it, I'd find the record I liked, I'd buy three or four records, I'd go home and play and play and play. I mean, that was, you know, Born in the USA was that year, Purple Rain was that year, 1984 obviously was that year. Even time after time, uh, or rather, She's So Unusual. Yep. I mean, there was, there was still the thriller, you know, dynamic running around. Like, there was just sort of this, uh, um, I think that was Can't Slow Down was that year. Lila Ritchie, I want to say. His big, his like monster The Walking on the Ceiling album? Yeah, hello, and yeah. all that stuff. Um, running with the night, so it was sort of this huge, like it was almost in Madonna was starting to come into the mix. It felt like this huge change in in pop culture and pop music. And I was at that age where you know, every week I'd be listening to American Top Forty, I'd buy Billboard magazine, and two or three new songs would show up, and I'd hear them on the radio. I was like, "This is the fucking greatest song ever." Now, when you get older, you know it's not, but at the time, that's sort of for me is that year where I really discovered stuff and I had, you know, a million albums and cassettes and 45s. So it was still, I'm old enough still to say I bought albums, you know, I mean, not like ironically or hipsterly or whatever. Like I actually, that, that's what I had. I had a record player in my room in, 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 in Dorica. Now do you, okay. You say, I, I question this. I often think the eighties were maybe the last time for, I, I think the music actually, the pop music was that good. Because things weren't as fragmented as they are now. There wasn't like, for instance, even in movies, you have Netflix, you have all these options. Even in music, you have all these options. I feel like in the 80s, you didn't have as many options. And because of that, the good music did have a better chance of rising to the top, where now I feel it just gets fractured or maybe I'm just old and out of touch. 
Well, maybe, but I, like, I don't disagree. You know, I think a thing like, look, is it, this is not a perfect soundtrack or a perfect movie though. I like it a lot. Like, you know, I don't think culturally um, something can make the impact that like the Footloose soundtrack made on, on them. And I think that was 84. I could be wrong, but I think that was 84. 84, 85, where, right? Yeah. I think, yeah. One of those two years where you had the, obviously the title song, you had almost paradise. You had, um, let's hear it for the boys. Let's hear, it, you know, hold no for, you know, you had, yeah, I'm free. All these songs that like, you know, for and these songs would play if you go look at the Wikipedia page for the Footloose soundtrack, um, or like Born in the USA, or even Chicago Seventeen, which was '84. Mm. You know the four or five singles that came out that year uh, that came out from that album are spaced over like seventeen months. So I mean these these albums and songs stayed, stayed around forever at that time. Like I think the last released single from Born in the USA was probably close to twenty months after the album was released. I mean, that would never, I don't think would, I mean, it's, it's apples and oranges, obviously, because that's not the way the world works now, but that was part of it too. You're right that there was such a small, uh, a limited amount of, of stuff that when something was big, it stuck around rather than just being there for a week and fading away. That's I totally, mean, Thriller was around for, for years. Yeah. No, that's totally, it's totally right. Cause like, look at Karate Kid. So we, last week we covered the last week of June, 1984, and that was actually the week Karate Kid came out. But because you had Ghostbusters, Gremlins, and Temple of Doom, it didn't hit the top three, so we didn't cover it. Flash forward to the last week of October. Four or five months later. <laughs> and it's, it's, I think it was the number two movie this week. Yeah, right. And it was like, right. what the fuck? I, I, I mean, you, you know, obviously I'm old enough where I do remember movies being in the movie theater for 30 weeks, 40 weeks. But if you told a 25-year-old that, it'd be like, they'd think your head was like, you know. Was no, 12 weeks like, It doesn't make any long. sense. Yeah, 12 yeah, weeks. Exactly. Go, you know, go to the box office mojo page and look at E.T., Oh I mean, my god! Five for a year. Well, that was the first uh, movie I saw in the theaters, and I saw it right. when I was uh, almost four because it had been in the theaters for a year. It came out right. when I was two. Um, so it, was, it, was, it was number one for I think twelve weeks in '82, and I think it played in the theaters for you know sixty weeks. I mean, it just and and look, part of that is you know back then these were still though though they were becoming uh, these studios were beginning to be bought out by corporations. They started realizing because of Jaws and then Star Wars that you can make a lot of money off it there was still sort of that last whiff of independence to it. And things weren't being released on, you know, I don't know the first weekend that um, say I'm trying to, like, I'm trying to think of a big eighties movie that had a lot of like, that had a lot of backing behind it. Say like um, temple of doom. I don't know how many theaters that was released in the first weekend. It couldn't have been more than a thousand though. I mean, there's no way. You didn't have the 4,000 release like you see right. today. It was right. It was yeah. close to between a thousand and 2000. It hit 2000 would have been astronomical. Right, and you had time for a movie to uh, get get word of mouth, to get buzz, which almost never, ever, ever, ever happens now. Where no, you you're right, buzz. Like, yeah, right. Where their movies were the uh, the eighth, ninth week, all of a sudden it's number one after because people talk about it and talk about it and talk about it. And that's exactly what happened. With Karate Kid, Karate Kid opened sixth. Yeah, and then right. you know, flash forward four months later, it's number two. It doesn't make any sense in our world, but in that time, it did. Um, but yeah, you wanted to do headlines? Well, before you do that, I just wanted to say, I think it's almost opposite with the music, though. It costs so much money to make an album back then. Like, it costs nothing to do it now. Like, right. you, know, you just need a computer and an interface, and you're done. That, you know, they really had to make sure that whatever they were going to record and, and put out, and even distributing costs a lot of money because you have these physical things with CDs and all that shit. Like, it, I think you really needed to make sure that your band was fucking good before you started that process. So maybe well, that limited you know, your choices. You know, stories, you know, like the Eagles would go to England to record an album or go to Colorado and then go down to Miami. I remember in the Petty documentary, um, I don't know if you guys saw it or not, the Bogdanovich, when he directed the Tom Petty documentary, it's like three and a half hours. It's called Running Down 
believe it's great. And he talks about when they made the end of the torpedoes, he and Jimmy Iovine would listen to it in, in California and then say, let's bring the Masters with us to New York and play it in New York. The same thing, just to see if it sounds different in New York. And back then, like, you talk about extravagant. I mean, but we were also, you know, the 80s were also an era where, you know, heavy metal bands like Van Halen would take a helicopter from their dressing room to the stage. So, I mean, it was a different, it was a different world back then. I saw Van Halen uh, in their last tour when they were, when, when David Lee Roth was, uh, was, was back with them. I think it was maybe 2007 or eight or something when I was right. in Oakland. It was one of the best shows I've ever seen. I loved it so much. Really? It, I, I loved I know it. They were, they were so good. There are times when Roth in some of the, in the later ones where sometimes he sounded very Barry Manilow-ish. He sounded awesome. In really? That show. Okay. Yeah. He, he sounded like surprising. full, full on. He was great. I don't know if he got tired at the end. Of, see, I, I missed that too. 84. I wasn't really paying much attention to Van Halen then. And then, you know, he left kind of shortly after. But, Howard Stern's replacement too. As well. Oh yeah. There's that. <laughs> That's true. But he, I, I, so I don't know if at the end of that run, he was not sounding as good, but he sounded amazing. Um, and he was super fit and running around doing his kicks. And, and he's, I don't know how old he was in his mid fifties, probably at that time, I guess. They're pretty close. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, we can go on to want to do some headlines. Yeah. So we have two and Kirk, maybe you can help us out too with these two, because just because Matt and I were just so young, I don't remember, but this was the week leading into Reagan Mondale. So, uh, you know, Mondale had said he was going to spend this last week kind of focusing on the Northeast. And as obviously everyone knows, he got annihilated in the election. He, I think he only won Minnesota and Washington, D.C. Uh, do you remember the election at all, Kirk? And if so, like, do you remember like how the country felt or how you felt or maybe how your family felt? Well, it just felt like Reagan was such a, like a, like a large in life figure. He felt like he was, he was America at that point. It just didn't seem like, you know, I didn't know any, at that point, I didn't know anything about Republicans, what that meant, what this meant, what that meant, but it felt like he was, he was the only president I ever known, like as a, as, as having, you know, brain have being a formative human being. Um, the only thing I remember as a kid was it was a big deal when they picked Ferraro. That was like a major, major, it was all over Because before school, you'd watch a little bit of news in your mom before you got to ride to school. And like, that was a Good Morning America Today show, new stuff. Every, they'd talk to women and they'd talk to Ferraro and that whole, that was really big. And then the, the, uh, the joke at the, you know, the, the great joke at the, the many, many people, you know, think Reagan's one of the great humorists of all time. They do, Some people do. Including Steve Robinson, your producer. <laughs> yeah, correct. <laughs> where he said uh, he will not take advantage of Mondale's youth and experience after Reagan totally tanked the first debate. And if you watch it now, it is true. And it rings true, you know, looking at Biden today. I mean, Reagan was really struggling in that first debate. Had that line, Mondale even laughed, and it was over. And it was even back then, like, you know, you were still at the point in history where, sure, they battled, but, like, Mondale and Reagan seemed to generally like each other. Like, it never got even, like, ugly for, like, where we're at now or four years ago. It never got ugly like it did even with, say, like, Kerry and Bush or, you know, uh, say, or maybe Obama and Romney a little bit. It never even got to that point. It was just kind of two old guys. And, funnily enough, Mondale seemed a lot of touch at the time. Hmm. It's kind of his turn back then. They would sort of give the position to people. It was their turn. And then Republicans did that. And now we're seeing the Democrats doing that again. It's kind of this... You know, it's all right. Well, let's give it to the guy who, who you know was once vice president because nobody else better. So there's some there's some echoes of that. Sure, absolutely, uh, and yeah, kind of that idea of it being um, like your turn, or you know, you like you, you you get to you know you get to, the opportunity to be able to run for president, which seems like an insane way to, to do it, I mean, especially when guys like Obama and Clinton who kind of came out of nowhere. Yeah. That well, whatever. Yeah. All right. Well, so there was, no, there was no drama attached to this. I mean, it was not a. It was not. It would, you know, if you had asked, I think people three months before that, I don't think it was said 49 states to one necessarily, but everyone knew it was going to be a bludgeoning. It was not going to be a competitive race. 
another thing I think hurt Mondale or certainly didn't help him because we know how it ended. But so I didn't know this. Uh, maybe you remember this, Kirk. But uh, mm-hmm. in on a Halloween, so your birthday, uh, in Rhonda, I might be saying your name wrong. In Rhonda Gandhi, she was the prime minister of India. She was assassinated by her own bodyguards. They right. took her out when she was going for a walk, and they just right. they shot her thirty times. And it was it became huge news. I I, I went through like the New York Times during this week. And it was front page news all five days after she died. And it's like, if you're Monda, you're like, fuck. Like, this is my last chance maybe to do something big to try to get, if, if you're the underdog. Well, there's huge protests after that, too, with like 3,000 dead. In, they were warned it was crazy. a war. Right, it yeah. was like, do you remember this woman dying? And if so, like, what was the attitude then? Same thing. Like, I remember, like, this little kid seeing it on the news. And back then, that's how you find out about stuff. Like, you wouldn't, you know, if you got killed right now, and it was 1984, this point of night, I would have gone to bed. My parents probably, maybe they were watching news that night, maybe, but if they, you know, didn't know any better, you wouldn't know until you pick up the newspaper the next morning. I mean, that's very possible. Whereas some equivalent of that now, you would know. Instantly. We would know, yeah. we would know right now as we were speaking within obviously two seconds. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't, I don't think, I think if this woman had, you know, somehow evaded that, that, that assassination attempt turned in, in, you know, I, I don't think that would have helped Walter Mondale. He was. No, he was, I can't imagine. But yeah, if you're, but if you're in Mondale's camp, you must have been like, "Are you fucking kidding me? Really? Like, you know, yeah, this I, got, I got five is, days left, and this, I'm this. getting annihilated. Let me, yeah. You know, let me at least get a couple of front pages here. Um, yeah. yeah, I just, they, I, I had no idea that it even happened. And then the last thing was, and I know Kirk, you went, you went to Fordham, right? Mm-hmm. I was at Fordham. Yeah. So I, I lived in New York as well. Um, so mm-hmm. on in on October 28th, 1984, that was when the MTA said, "Hey, we want to have metro cards. We don't want to have tokens anymore." And they wouldn't right. get rid of tokens until 1992, which just shows you the progress of the MTA. How it takes so long to get anything done. I know they've been trying to get like a like Apple uh, Apple Pay. Like they want to get that to be the new thing. We yeah, basically yeah. run a chip over right. it, but that's not going to happen forever. It just shows you how long it takes for the subway to make any changes. Which if Kirk lived in New York, he understands. The like, subway is a complete nightmare. It's a fucking disaster. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, when I was there in the early 90s, you know, I'd, I'd walk up you know, walk up the hill to take, take the train, even say, say take the D train into the city or something. And it was a pit. It, it was, you know, I, I dreaded every single time. And I still use tokens, you know, fairly, fairly often back then. You know, I, it, so what year did you say the cards were instituted? 92 is when they finally had the Metro cards, but 84 is when they wanted to implement them. Right. So I remember seeing the cards. I had the cards on it, but you, I would also sometimes use tokens and it was just, yeah, it was never, it, 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 I haven't been, that's not true. I was in them a couple of times going to, to, to Barstool, but, you know, it's an experience I tried to avoid as much as much as possible when I was there. I mean, the way that the way that Fordham is, it's almost like, you know, you walk. They shot the movie Quiz Show there, for example. All yep. the college scenes. Great are, movie, are right right So it looks like it's 1952, at least when I was there. You know, in our all the way around it, it does not look like it's 1952, and they basically have, you know, fences. You know, everything gates around. You walk in there, and then you walk out. And I mean. There's lots of part, literally, at least right there, which is cool. And, and it's you know, I, the area could have changed a lot in the last 20 years. I don't know. But yeah, you'd walk up the big hill, you'd take the train in the city. And when you're a kid from Winchester, you're taking the train in the fucking New York City going through some areas you didn't know about. It's And they just, I mean, I'm not sure why they haven't been able to clean that particular part up the trains. Same, in Bo- same with Boston. Fucking the subways are worse in New York. I go to New York from uh, 2012 to 2016. And it's worse because they run 24 hours. So at least in New York, you have some time at night in to Boston, clean them. Yeah, in theory, it, yeah. I, I know right. they're always spotless, but in New York, you just don't have a chance to clean them. And it's fucking, you know, some bum covered in feces. And, you know, you see him when you get off the train late at night and you see the same guy when you get into, you know, go to work in the morning. You're like, motherfucker, really? Like, this sucks. Um, I can't even imagine going. I remember some late nights coming back from the city. Oh. To the, and it was scary. I mean, there were, there were drunk people. There were homeless guys. 
you felt, you know, you felt kind of bad, but you're also scared. I can't imagine what's going on in the world now. If you had to, for your job going on a fucking train in New York city no. or, 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 or anywhere. I mean, I can't even, I, I, I it's what a, what a nightmare for these people that they have to do that. But yeah, the first, the first three months I was in New York, I got, I, I never get sick. I got, I got the food pretty bad twice just because in the subways, you're just covered. You just, you know, people are breathing in your face. You're just surrounded by people all the time. And you're going to pick up different, you know, it takes you a while to pick up immunity. And like, yeah, I was like, was it sick twice in three months? I'm like, are you kidding me? Uh, but yeah, I think the, I, I guess yeah, the first month I was at Fordham, I remembered I had to get off at one twenty fifth to switch trains. Right. Cause you were going and, to the Bronx. Yeah. Yep. And I was, I mean, I was a kid kid who had never, you know, I didn't know anything. It's a bad area. And, and I, and I was, and it was, you know, 90, it was early nineties. And I was, and you know, you know, these guys are going to do anything, but this is all you're thinking is what the, where the fuck am I? What is this world? What the hell is this? Um, but yeah, and it never, you know, like I said, all the way up to when I was there, whenever I went to Barstool four or five months ago, it's gotten no better. Like if you're in that, if you're in that, that if you're on the one or the, or the D or whatever train you're on, and you told me it was 1996, I'd fucking believe you. They've made no improvements at all. None. Smells the same. Nothing. It's brutal. That switch is tough. So that switch too, if, if you're a baseball fan, that's where the polo ground used to be. So if right, you, yeah, right. if you walk right there now, uh, rough, rough, uh, like yeah. government projects, but yeah, that's right. where the pole, they, the only thing left in the polo grounds is a staircase. I went there, my buddy, my buddy's a lot bigger yeah. than me. So me and my buddy went to the staircase. We took some pictures just to say we went to the polo grounds. You brought him as uh, as backup. Yeah. I'm not here with myself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm built like Ralph Maggio. I'm not going to go anywhere myself. Can me? And that same D takes you 161, which is uh Yankee stadium. You bet. Mm. Yep. So you have that there as well, which is again, sort of a different universe as well, but yeah. Awesome. Uh, that's all I got. I think that's it. Unless you have anything else, Kirk. I got nothing else, boys. Everything else is good. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would recommend anybody um, who's interested in doing 5Ks. I signed up for the virtual 5K. Not Kirk has that on his uh, on the website. If you go to kirkmanahanshow.com, yep. uh, you can get uh, you can sign up and you can race against me. It's a virtual 5K. You'll Kick probably beat me. Probably, I mean, yeah. probably. I'm not. I'm doing the best. Like I'm training now. Kirk's fast. Really? I'm not. Yeah. yeah, we got. It looks like we have a nice number for it. I think it's gonna be good. It's a, I was looking for something to sort of. You know, for the people who are watching us, listening to us, who don't listen to my show, sometimes our world can sort of go to battle with each other. It seemed like a nice galvanizing moment. Yeah. Everyone get together, exercise a little bit. You don't have to be near each other. It should be a nice day. And we're celebrating the life of my boss, who unfortunately passed away. <laughs> second, One day before the race. So, yeah, he, you know, had a, had a paper cut opening some fucking box and bled to death, maybe. Who knows? <laughs> but, uh, but it should be fun. I talked to Steve, my producer. It sounds like he has a... We get some big numbers for it, and if you listen to the show this week, I think we we are. I did something over the weekend that I had the most fun professionally doing in probably ten years. You appeared on so, Quantum Week, right? Yes, <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. And hopefully, we can pull this off. I think it was Steve and I have been texting. He said it's going to be. It's a lot of production, but I think Karan will probably have to use you. But uh, I, I want to have it up by Thursday or Friday this week, I think. So there may be another one of these bonus episodes that will piss off 90% of the audience, which is good. That's awesome. you got to be doing that, you know? Um, uh, I'm excited for this. This, yeah, uh, this episode it. will come out Wednesday. So if you're hearing this Wednesday, then you only have a couple of days before you can check out That's this. true. That's true. Insane, That's true. That's uh, our goal. That's yeah. our goal. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Kirk. Thanks, Kirk. Really uh, appreciate well, it. Funniest podcast in America. All right. All right take well, care. Have a good night. Thanks right. again. Thank you.